do you feel that the aspiration and the the demands of the the protesters have been adequately reported in the Western media? I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think the right question to ask is: Does the Western media and does the Eastern media understand Hong Kong as a society? Does it understand Hong Kong's national ambitions? Does it understand Hong Kong's sociological divisions? And does it understand Hong Kong's yearnings? If we were to take that all into perspective, no, it does not. Uh, they understand the protesters. They understand the government. They understand the superficial details and the conflicts. But if they, if, but if, but if, but if you were to ask me. Does the Wall Street Journal, does the South China Morning Post, do you or do I understand Hong Kong itself? Then really, we've all failed in that regard. We don't know shit about Hong Kong. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host Carl Za. Today we have a very special guest. I always welcome all different political opinions and perspective. And today we're gonna have a Hong Konger who is on the pro Hong Kong protest of things. Give us a a his take. On the Hong Kong protests, and welcome to the show, Mr. Leong. Did I say your name correctly? Lap Gong Leong. Yes, thank you very much. You got that right. Usually, everybody says Leong, but it's actually Leong. Like I bet some people say Zha, but it's actually Za, right? Uh, Za. <laughs> but I, I'm not too picky. <laughs> I'm not too picky. Sorry about that. Oh no, no worries, uh, no worries. It's not a, it's not a very uh, common last name. Um, so why don't you, before we start, why don't you um, give us a little, just a brief introduction of who you are, how you come to, you know, where you are now, uh, just just anything you want to talk about, really about, about yourself. Well, my name is Lap Gong Leong. I am 22 years old, and I'm a lower sophomore. So that means you're just starting out as a sophomore at Borough of Manhattan Community College. That means I'm not very smart.、Um, so, Borough of Manhattan Community College in New York City—it's a school with about twenty-two thousand people. Not very welcoming, not very big, but I'm very well supported there. I'm、um, I'm usually on Twitter、uh, most of my day, be, mostly sheer out of sheer frustration of usual life stuff. What I have to do, stuff like that. But it's nothing personal. A lot of anger management just gets into that, and it helps me not be angry in, in on daily life. So wait, you get on Twitter to be not angry? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I, I get on Twitter so I, I so I'm not angry in real life. If I was not on Twitter right now, I'd probably be barking at my、uh, mother or father. <laughs> oh, okay. So. All, all the residual anger in my body transfers onto social media, 
and the rest of the world will have to deal with my worst self. So other people in real life can deal with my less worse self. <laughs> okay, so you're you're actually you're saying you're actually much chiller in real life than your online persona. Is that what you're trying maybe, to say? Maybe, maybe. In real life, I like to watch movies. Well, I used to. So how um, are you originally born and raised in Hong Kong? I was born in 1996.、Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but I was born in Hong Kong with a Singaporean passport because my dad did a trade mission for the Singaporean government. So I was never really a Hong Kong citizen, and for some reason, my mom never applied for a home return permit. So. Never got to go to China as frequently as I liked, so that explains my isolation. My mom is from- so that's actually pretty common, I think, among you know a lot of the Chinese diaspora.、Uh, I, I like to have that kind of multiple identities. I mean, that's well, but、uh, people I come into contact with. I I one time dated a、um, Taiwanese girl in LA, but she grew up in Singapore. Um, which、uh, which means she could、uh, cook a very nice meal of、uh, bakute, <laughs> which which I miss.、Uh, but anyway, so so how did you go from born and raised in Hong Kong to come to United States? Then well, it was a it was a weird story. I was living in Hong Kong, having my nice existence, going to a Singaporean going to Singaporean internet. Sorry. Attending Singapore International School, which I didn't like, but I thought it would I I I thought it would be a good school because all my friends were there and it was the only world I knew. Even though they treated me like crap and I treated them like crap, and one day around、uh, primary six or primary five, I forgot. My dad's、um, I was already autistic. They already knew I was autistic. They already knew I had Tourette's. That part of my life, I'm not going to explain how traumatizing it was for my parents. They they put a brave face on it, but it's kind of clear they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that I was deformed. And are you the only child? Yeah, but I have a couple other brothers and sisters from other marriages.、Um, so they decided. Well, and and I and at first I I got I found this as a clear. Liberation. We're going to go to America, but only my father came with me to America as my mother would restart her career. How old were you? I was eleven,、oh, nearly twelve. So I moved to America. I moved to New York City. First, staying at two fifty-five West Ninety-fourth Street at a building called the Lyric, and. Because I, I was gonna say that you know I talking to you I didn't detect、uh, any accent. No, I'm not.、Uh, no, I don't sound like an Asian American, do I? <laughs> you you don't you don't sound a, a Hong Konger. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and then I lived there, and after a year, I moved to my current apartment, which I'll keep a secret. Although if you're on Twitter, you'll probably know where it is.、Um, and then I've been living in New York ever since. However, I think for the first. Four or five years, I lived in、uh, in the United States、uh, from 2011 to 2015, or yeah, 2011 to 2015. I went to boarding school in Connecticut, and I didn't go to a high end academic 
good boarding school. I went to a very low quality special education boarding school for underachieving kids. And while it didn't turn me off to America, it pretty, it didn't, it sort of pissed me off that what was, what is supposed to be an accepting country didn't really uh, accept people that were different. And while I never received any racism in America, not one bit of racism, and unless it was in New York City where it was, you know, a bit of jab here or there, um, what I didn't experience was New Yorkers are just different. <laughs> they, they have a different uh, <laughs> attitude. No, and no, but the longer you live here, then you start picking it up yourself. So when I see people that I don't like, I'll just be be an asshole for no reason. I mean, it's very weird like that. You know, I see somebody I don't like. I'll just I'll just act like an asshole because I just will. I also have that this unearned sensibility sense that I am better than other people. It's it's it, it just after you live here for about four or five years, you you pick up this great sensibility that you really are on top of the world. It's just you get this through osmosis. You you attribute that as uh, being just around Americans. <laughs> No, no, I think New Yorkers are very different. I really do think yeah. we are this narcissistic. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I mean, New Yorkers are definitely that different breed. Yeah. And I love living in America, but it's it's definitely it's definitely been a journey. How many years have you been uh living in US now? Sorry, I, I don't know how old you are. Coming this month, I'm twenty two. Coming this month I will have been here for ten years. Oh, okay. And I have loved living in America as possibly as an intellectual concept. I don't actually like living here anymore. But the problem is this is the only place I've I've actually been comfortable in, not comfortable as in liking it or, or enjoying everyday life, but it's the only place that has possibly accepted me as an autistic person, as a person of merit, and as a person of, of uh, not consequence, of, of substance. Whereas if I'm in Hong Kong or if I'm in Singapore or if I'm in China, such as I was in Guangzhou or as I was, if I was in Shenzhen or Shanghai, I, I would be considered unruly. I've always felt unruly and not a person. I think that is uh, typical in, in Asia. There you know, people there um haven't really come to grapple with uh, disability the same way that uh, more developed countries like the west have um no i don't actually believe that at all i think i think chinese people are i think it's all different in america you have countless aid i think this is only in america because i've is in the uk or in europe the rest of continental europe certainly not italy but in other countries, you get a little bit of aid. In America, you get a lot of aid, especially if you're rich, and if you can hire, if you can hire lawyers, or if you can advocate for yourself, you get a lot of aid. But the but the aid always comes in varying qualities, and it never serves you the way it's supposed to serve you. And while everybody could get a soft spot for you. The, the services rendered never live up, not only just to expectation, they never live up to what they're supposed to do. And um, in the end, you're, 
in the end, no matter how generous your support can be, you will become unsupported one day if you get on their nerves or if you challenge their authority or wh- whatever. It, it, it's it's kind of like one country, two systems in that way. Ha ha ha. Do you have an example of that? I, I'd rather not get into it, but certainly, okay, that's fine. you know, that's fine. It, it, I, I had a really bad example uh, in school one day and where, where I said, I will not take any more classes. I'll just do CLEP. And CLEP is called the college level examination something. I don't know what the P stand, stands for, where you do an exam, you get college credit. But however, at BMCC, there are only certain CLEPs that can get college credit. So I asked around. Which CLEPs get college credit? Is it the are, is it the ones on the website? Because I called up my department and said, well, no, we don't accept any CLEP. And then I asked my advisor, because that's what the website says. And then she said she didn't know. Ask the Office of, ask the office of Continuing Education. And it's I can't go I can't even go to the Office of Accessibility because the people there don't even know what CLEP is. I can't even ask, ask the counseling center because they don't even know what CLEP is. So this one simple question ends up killing the whole entire support system. And that's not the first time I've, I've seen it misfire in action. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I can understand. It's in U.S., sometimes it's very frustrating just to, like, getting hold of a real person who can actually just... No, no, the real people are there. The information is not. I mean, when you're a special student. That's what I mean. It's like you can't just, uh, you know, go to the, the, the one, one person. I mean, I feel like in U.S. a lot of time it's uh, it's almost like bureaucratic, right? Like the, the, the per, each person has their own area of responsibility. Uh, and and you see, somehow that's fault. Outside of that, sorry. You're- well, if there are any Chinese universities that accept people with autism and does not require me to speak Chinese, I'm willing to go there. <laughs> so which year are you now? Second year. And I'm already 22, so that officially officiates me as the dumbest person on record. Oh, no. Nah, no, trust me. <laughs> That's not <laughs> – that, that, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, but – you know, I, I appreciate that you take the time to come to the show um, and to talk about Hong Kong, because right now, you know, the Hong Kong protest has been going on for a month now, and it's 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 an ongoing saga. Uh, any, I'm sorry? I think it's about 83 or 84 days. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and right now, I mean, many people all over the world, right, have their eyeballs on Hong Kong. And I have been covering Hong Kong from a more uh, <laughs> anti-Hong Kong protest side. So it's good that you come in and, you know, give your take on, on the issue because you're pretty active on Twitter. Um, that's where I first met you because, you know, you will always be commenting under my thread. Um, and I do appreciate that even though we have very different political opinions regarding the issue that you have uh, always been very courteous, very respectful in your disagreement. So um, welcome. Yes. Well, thank you. Yes. Um, go ahead. I mean, like the, the mic is yours. So so just give us your take on, on the Hong Kong issue and 
and um and and how you see it how how i mean like i don't know if for, for my perspective you know i a lot of times i get challenged on twitter by people saying oh uh you know how why are you so one-sided you know uh you why you only cover one side of the the protest and to that i respond well you know the <laughs> most of the establishment establishment media in the west are on the side of the Hong Kong protest. You know, you can get plenty of information, um, whereas I don't see the other side being ad- adequately covered. That's why I was trying to readdress. Do you feel that the aspiration and the the demands of the, the protesters have been adequately reported in the Western media? I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think the right question to ask is, does the Western media and does the Eastern media understand Hong Kong as a society? Does it understand Hong Kong's national ambitions? Does it understand Hong Kong's sociological divisions? And does it understand Hong Kong's yearnings? If we were to take that all into perspective, no, it does not. Uh, they understand the protesters, they understand the government, they understand the superficial details and the conflicts. But if they, if, but if, but if, but if you were to ask me, does the Wall Street Journal, does the South China Morning Post, do you or do I understand Hong Kong itself? Then really, we've all failed in that regard. We don't know shit about Hong Kong. Uh, and I like to think I do. <coughs> I've tried to study Hong Kong because I'm from there, but in reality, I'm just as much as a foreigner as you are. Uh, I could, you could read Leo Goodstadt for the rest of your life. You could read every single um, book in the Hong Kong U collection, or you could read every single um, government gazette tape. You know, Hong Kong is one of the only countries in the world that does not have an adequate archive law. The government literally burns its own government documents in, or, in order to keep secrets. And when you have some, when you have a, an all-powerful government in a rapidly liberalizing, secularizing society, and let's be honest, Hong Kong is is becoming increasingly nationalist. You're not going to have any increased understanding of Hong Kong itself. You're you're going to um, see Hong Kong in a certain light within your certain prejudices, within your certain um, binaries. So it's either protester versus government, China versus Hong Kong, Leo Goodstadt versus whoever else. And yeah, in that regard, I don't think any of us, you, me, uh, the SCMP, Ming Bo, or definitely Western media, or for that matter, CCTV and the People's Daily will understand Hong Kong. Not because we haven't given enough time to it. People are reading and writing and learning as we speak, although how well they're doing it is and people seem to forget this, is that Hong Kong is a rapidly liberalizing and rapidly nationalizing society. And we could say society or we could say nation. I don't mean nation as in state. I I mean nation as collection of people. Not in the same way as Xinjiang or, or, or maybe in the same way as Xinjiang, but it is a nation 
that no longer respects its all-powerful government. And if you look at it that way, then you can understand that Hong Kong will not have a great future. Because if you have an all-powerful government backed by an even more all-powerful government without that, that wants to mold and shape its changing society in a way that it can no longer be molded or shaped into, in a way and want and it can no longer be marketed as, you're just going to get a bunch of fireworks every single day. I mean, think about this outside perspective of Hong Kong. In the nineteen in the nineteen fifties, it was or in in the pre-war pre in the Victorian era, it was Pearl of the Orient. Really, was a nineteen thirties thing. It was the outpost of the British Empire that was self that was not only profitable and self-determining, it was clean, safe, good for foreigners, good for Chinese people. It was possibly the only well-governed part of the British Empire that didn't go up in flames. But guess what? That's also a false lie, because there were riots all the time. You only have to read history for that. It's, you know, not all the time. There were riots sometimes, and a lot of them had to do with... with, um, you know, stuff like sanitation and all that. And then as governance improved, that's how you got the clean image of the third largest port in the British Empire. Then in the 1900s, then in the 1930s, it really did reach its peak. Then you get the war period. Then you get the 40s and 50s, which is which is this post-war period where you had a sense of social solidarity. That was also gone to, through the outside. What people didn't see was the KMT uh, Chinese communist war, warring on the neighborhoods and how the British government was able to, oh my God, avoid a position. People only people only knew Hong Kong as an internet. People, I, I believe the world consciousness of Hong Kong, sorry, I believe people, I believe the recent image of Hong Kong as we know it, not as our grandfathers knew it, only came around maybe the 70s when the British government improved itself to the highest level. That's not to say MacLeod just came in and made it all great. That's another modern myth drummed up by the liberal establishment. Um, because there were good governors before him and there were bad governors before him. Um, but the But the current image of Hong Kong has been stuck in the past and the current image of Hong Kong now is hopefully stuck in these old dichotomies. What, so what, what was the question you were going to ask me? Sorry, I was just... Oh, no, I was just going to make a comment, uh, especially regarding uh, what you said earlier about, you know, most of the people talking about Hong Kong don't really understand Hong Kong really, really. And I agree because... Well, neither do you or neither do I. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree because I, I often said about reporting on China is like, a bunch of blind men feeling the elephant, right? I mean, Hong Kong. What you describe about Hong Kong, I mean that that does ring a bell. It 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 is basically right now the whole world, right? Whole world of blind men trying to fill this elephant that is Hong Kong, right? Even though Hong Kong is not very large, but it is. It ha- it's because it's very unique place and. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings. And then thank you for that very, very brief introduction of uh, Hong Kong's historical background. Um, and 
So let's move forward to talk about. I think I think I have to correct you there. You have to realize that Hong Kong, like I think I told you this on Twitter, Hong Kong has a huge expat class. And the unique thing about the expat class, in my opinion, is that they care a hell of a lot more about Hong Kong than the governing class. So the governing class used to be European, Eurasian, and a little bit Asian, and then it became all Asian, and now it's Chinese. But what never changed about the expat class, even as it even it, it too has become a little less white, is that the expat class cares about Hong Kong. When you come to Hong Kong and you go into expat strongholds and when you go up to mid-levels and when you talk to people who, don't, who aren't born in Hong Kong, it's clear that they have a shared sense of solidarity with the city. And even though they're conscious of the fact that they, they're not from China, they love this city to death. When you look at journalists, when you, when you go to the FCC, they love this city to death. And this comes out to the nationalism of Hong Kong. Like I said, Hong Kong is a rapidly nationalizing society. They are believing themselves to be a Hong Kong um, entity. And part of that is part, most of it is Chinese people themselves, the Chinese people in Hong Kong. But part of that is expats. And the true, the fact is, Mr. Za, is that the expats cared about Hong Kong and its many ills, such as environmental ills, social ills, um, you know, the, the unseen parts of our sick society, a hell of a lot more than the government or the rich people did. And that filters down into the shared consciousness. But yes, let's go on to your next question because I don't want to bore you. No, so, no, but no, yes, that's the, fascinating. I mean, thank you for adding additional depth. So, so the reason why the journalists care so much is because this is the only part of their press room, their assignment briefing, I don't know how journalism works, where they ever felt part of society. If you go to, if you go to Singapore, you're a journalist in Singapore, you're not really allowed to report anything. You're stuck. Lee Kuan, you, you say one bad thing, Lee Kuan Yew, the ghost of Lee Kuan Yew will stab you in the back. <laughs> you go to Malaysia, okay, maybe it's changed since 2014, but you're not fully welcome there. You go to Hong Kong, not only do you have a close, knit, tight community, you have, you, you're welcomed, not, not immediately, but the longer you stay or however much you stay, uh, whatever food you eat, no matter how, what you, where you live in, you're part of Hong Kong. And I'm, I don't mean this in some sort of weird civic, you know, conceited. Oh, we're all Jock, uh, we're all Jock, uh, Tamsin's Bairns type of way. What what I mean to say is that when journalists come to Hong Kong, it is often the only place where they feel part. Of the growings of a growing, dynamic society that's going somewhere, and when you, even when the economy might be tanking, and even when the government may treat you like shit, and it is amazing, it is this phenomenon is amazing. You only have to look. I have a lot of expat friends. Whenever they talk about Hong Kong, they talk as if they've lived here, even if they don't live here forever. They talk as if they would die for it. Maybe that's not how they see it right now. 
but but I'm going to say this again. They care for this place a lot more than I do. And that's a sad fact, and that, that shames me to death. A white person caring about Hong Kong more than me? That's one of the, mo- that's one of the moments where I realized I don't know anything about the city. Next question. Yeah, I mean, do you feel that possibly one of the reason uh, how, I mean, what you just said, does that shape the coverage of Hong Kong in the Western media? No, I think what shapes the coverage of Western media is that is that it's a very sexy story. Firstly, it's a true story. The protesters have a very... Actually, I'm going to redefine that again. The protesters have clear demands. So you don't really have to do that much research into who the protesters are. It's a leaderless movement. So even if you wanted to dig deep, you'd be doing the stupidest thing if you were saying, this man's the ultimate protester. This man's the ultimate sell. You'd not only be doing CBS, your editor, whatever, a disservice, you'd make yourself look very stupid. You'd make everyone look stupid. You'd, you'd essentially be doxing people. There is, I think a lot of Chinese people don't know. There is no black hand. There is no foreign interference. There is no U.S.-funded whatever. What's funding the protesters, if, if anything, is, is the first taste of shared class solidarity that Hong Kong has, has had since maybe 22, 1922. Interesting data out of CUHK, Chinese University of Hong Kong. 59% of the protesters are middle class. But you know what's the chunk? But you know what's the surprising number? 33% are middle class and 8% are other. Now, what do they mean by other? They don't want to say rich. But yeah, it's pretty clear some of them are rich. That doesn't mean the rich people are funding the working class and middle class. It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a shared of, uh, it's a sense of shared solidarity. For the first time, Da Gong Zai, a taxi driver, and and man who lives in upper mid levels, all have a shared sense of goal and worth, and are in the same boat. It hasn't happened since the war or the last labor strike. And when you ha- – I mean, look at Umbrella. Umbrella was a massively middle-class movement. The people in Admiralty were not poor. The people in Admiralty set up with, with, with tents were not struggling. The protesters outside the elite schools will not suffer the cost of their protests. I mean, Pedzone Kid is probably eating a nice sandwich right now in his cramped apartment. But but the frontliner kids out there, they're not rich. They're not middle class. Most of them are. But the ferocious fighters, they're suffering. They have nothing to lose. They would vote for the Labor Party if they could. That's the other thing about Hong Kong people, Hong Kong, that that Mr. Za that other people don't realize if there if there could be a socialist party not boshi lai a real labor party atli corbin uh espd it could sweep the board 
33% is not enough to win the LegCo. 33% is enough to gain 33% of the parliament. That's what most people... What? Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's not a genuine socialist party in Hong Kong? There actually is. It's called it's called the League of Social Democrats, but uh, but they've just got rid of. But you know, long hair is not allowed to stand again. So, and long hair is kind of a marginal figure now, even though he is the best speaker. He is the most inspiring. He is in many ways the best of the pan Democrat bunch, because he you know he actually excites the crowd. He he is someone we want to vote for. Uh, he's basically been a perennial figure for a while you, you have to under, actually you have to understand this about the protesters the protest the protest movement if umbrella was against the pan democrats the protest movement is is all of the battered is all of the battered political uh political forces plus the battered people plus a lot of new people coming together it's not so much a last-ditch effort, although it did feel at first as it as if it was. It is a common house for us to lay to redress our grievances and be united. For the first time, we're not a divided. We're not a divided camp that would eat itself for extra gain. There are no Ronnie Tongs in this movement. Maybe there will be, but I don't feel that but I don't feel with this level of unity, with this level of power, with this level of self-reliance that you could easily defeat these people. Speaking of unity though, um, I mean I did notice, you know, what you say is certainly true among the young. I mean, overwhelmingly from the group from the teens to you know the early 20s they're very overwhelmingly on the side of the protest but and that cut across class lines yes but uh, there is a division in a, a society at large though i mean from from the post that you cited i do see there there's especially among the older generation uh the people who are either have reservations or outright against a protest. Of course, and I don't think the protests will be popular for long. I think as you and this is and I think I think this is the this is the heart of the protests. The protesters no longer care about being popular. What they care about is not even respect. What they care about is efficacy. Does the Hong Kong government realize what we are capable of? And does the Hong Kong government know the purpose and the moral meaning of the protesters? And if you and if you look at I don't just peruse the forums, but just sense it for yourself. You're a 25-year-old kid, you work in a shitty job you don't like, or you or you or even rarer, you work in a shitty job you have a chance at advancing in. And you spend your weekends doing this, or think about it in multiple perspectives. You've just had your big enemy give you no, the number one thing that you've always wanted, albeit in su suspicious circumstances. The government has, you see, people don't realize this. The government has supreme power. The people are not sovereign in Hong Kong. I don't think there is such a thing as sovereignty. 
The people do not have power in Hong Kong. The government does. Supposedly the chief executive. Specifically, the chief executive has the ability to withdraw the bill. It's not... And Carrie Lam was never a stickler for parliamentary procedure. So why is she withdrawing the bill using correct parliamentary procedure? Now, that's the thinking in protester circles. I never subscribed to that. If, I mean, it, is, it was in second reading. It'll have to be withdrawn in second reading. Although I do think it's also crap because, you know, she is the CE. Never mind. So the reason why Carrie Lab has 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 angered the protesters is more than that. She's essentially lost all trust in parts of society. Even the pro-Beijing oldies don't even like her anymore. She's not responsive. And even when she has had the capability to listen, it's clear that she, she has served one master. Not so much Beijing. Because I don't think Han Jeng would would have wanted this to go this far. She's serving a version and an interpretation of the Beijing Edict, which is we must mold and shape and, and allow Hong Kong to be autonomous within this vision. A great, autonomous, exceptional Hong Kong within the Chinese uh, the Chinese lineup, just like should not no no a city beyond one step above, but within the same plane. Um, but a lot of Hong Kong people don't like that. A lot of Hong Kong people couldn't care less if they were better than Shenzhen. They do go to Shenzhen. They go they do go to Guangzhou. That's how SCMP knew and wrote that sensationalist article about some guy getting a some guy getting his fingerprints and blood withdrawn and saying don't go to the protests anymore. A lot of protesters are not a bunch of China ignorant people. They go to China. They know what it looks like. They take a look at it and they don't like it. They, some of them possibly do maintain homes in China. Most of them probably have, have decided not to go back to China. A lot of many Hong Kong people are not spurned by China per se, but they want Hong Kong to develop and shape its own destiny the way they see fit. And if it fails, well, I'm, I'm sad to say they're going to have to own it up themselves. Whether Hong Kong people do own it up to them, own up their own failures, and whether Hong Kong people are capable of being a mature polity is very much an open question. And, you know, I'll admit, I've, I've said no a couple of times to my dad when we were arguing about this. Uh, my dad is very anti-protester, by the way. I've and we. This is the only point that we both agree on. Hong Kong is not a mature polity, but with with the protesters, with the protestings, I I do agree that the protesters have been out there and have made excessive use of force, which which has doubted my. Um, which has given me a lot of doubts about whether Hong Kong is a mature polity. But what the protesters have given me is reassurance that Hong Kong does want to be its own self-governing system. Hong Kong has the ability 
to to form its own political culture away from the first 25 30 years of mismanagement and misfire and granted we we've had had some successes Jasper Zung, Martin Lee, Uncle Chips. We've had a lot more failures, though. We've had a lot of steps backward. We have not been able to realize the parliamentary democracy that we thought we can that we thought we could build. And there's also conflicting conflict. People like my dad don't really like democracy. If it, if it has to be democracy, it must be one party only. A lot of my, a lot of people like my mother just want business-like government. They don't want people mucking it about with, with, with all their stuff. Yes to social reform. Yes to defeating the tycoons. No to to anything that's unstable. And when you have competing, when you have competing demands from people like me in the merchant class, people out there, the da gong zai, whatever, you're not going to. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a clear generation divide among the Hong Kongers? It's not a clear generation divide. It's it's just we are we have a we have clear societal divides without any way to resolve them, which is why democracy, even if it even when I do it myself, believe I don't really think it works, even when democracy may not work the best. It is clear that an elective representative body will have to discern, will have to solve these differences. For too long, I think for about 30 or 40 years now, we, we, we have had essentially wise men and then the good men and some women creating policy through committee. The civil service will create this. We will be responsive. We will put out feelers. The governor will will take a stand. We will do consultation. And the Chinese government has basically adopted this whole and put a goddamn red flag on it and demanded everyone be patriotic. But it's the same colonial mindset. The only reason why colonial rule in the post in 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 the in the uh post-war era worked was was one simple reason. The British government never worked for Hong Kong, but it never worked against us. And when you live in a city where a person will sell their mother, sell and and sell out their family, possibly eat their own child, I'm saying this metaphorically, for the purpose of gaining a little bit more money or a chance at greatness, not working against its own people will make you look like angels. Even though the British government was not perfect, the fact that you had somebody who was perceived to look out for them, or at least somebody that would not work against them, has become in time an angelic nature. And I and let, me, let me interject for a second though. Um, how has the uh, handover in 1997 affect that dynamic? I mean, do you feel the the Chinese central government is trying to work against the interest of of, uh, of Hong Kong? I'm not. I'm not really. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say my personal opinion because it's pretty. I, I don't know anything about the Chinese central government. I don't think Han Zheng is that connected to the central government. I don't know anything about the structure. 
I do think that the, I do. You feel the Hong Kong government does not rep- is working against the、uh, the interest of the Hong Kong people. I feel that the liaison office, and I feel that the Hong Kong government, and I feel that I feel that the linked special interests. I don't know how Chinese they are, but I do know for a fact that the liaison office often has a mind of its own. I do know for a fact that certain Hong Kong linked interests in Beijing have a mind of its own. I don't know how how Xi Jinping thinks about this, but I do think that he's not the most liberal of people. I do think they've been working against the interests of, if not Hong Kong people, then a lot of Hong Kong people, a lot of Hong Kong, to use that stupid phrase, stakeholders. Now I'm not going to blame Han Jing for this. He's just a young guy, and he's going to be foreign secretary. Very, I'm sorry. He's going to be the the head of the foreign service, whatever is the Chinese term for foreign secretary. Very soon, so he must have done a good job because we. You're you're referring to, of course, the head of a central government liaison office in Hong Kong, right? Yes, I think he's. I think the problem with the with the liaison office is that they've. Not only are they heavy-handed, they're arrogant. They believe it's all clear. We know who's running the shots. We know who we. Even though the Hong Kong government is all powerful, we know who's ruling beside them, and we know who has more than a golden share of what want who what needs to be done. And the problem with continuous successive people in the liaison office. Is that I don't think they've ever bothered to learn what was unique about this place, and I don't think they've bothered to listen to people. And the fact that Carrie Lam,、uh, the fact that the fact that they've wanted to mold Hong Kong into an exceptional autonomous city within their vision is what pisses us off. The flags don't piss us off. They do now, but we can deal with them. The Mandarin, okay, that pisses off pisses us off a little bit, but we can deal with that now. Now it pisses us off, but before then it did not. The mainland tourists, well, we need the money, but what we cannot tolerate is this band of not of I, I don't want to say thieves, but. This band of recalcitrant men, who have no understanding of our values, who have no understanding of the principles of Hong Kong governance, telling us how to be autonomous, telling us how to be unique, telling us how to be the best city we can be. Now, albeit, I'll, I'll be very honest, the liaison office. Does seem to have to be better informed. Does seem to have a better hold, a better knowledge base of what makes the city tick. But this goes back to the heart of the problem, and I will repeat this to all of your followers: You cannot tell Hong Kong and its people, and its stakeholders, and its corporations, whatever, how to be autonomous. If I had any advice for the next central government or the next liaison office, there's no problem with wanting a greater stake and a greater role in Hong Kong. That's your responsibility. 
one country, two systems is going to end very soon. It's only 27 years before we, we end up in under the same flag. But until then, you're going to have to back off. We need to decide how we develop. We need to decide what our constitutional uh, constitutional journey is. We need to decide our economic strengths. We need to decide what the purpose of this, I don't want to say city or country because then it will become very, very, um, we'll, we'll say city. We need to decide what Hong Kong wants to be in 2047. Once that date. Let me ask a question. So from my impression is that you seem to think the, the, the central liaison office is calling all the shots in Hong Kong. Like they're the ones that dictating policy in Hong I'm Kong. Is saying, that I'm not saying they're dictating policy. It is obviously it is obvious that the central liaison office would have never I mean, if the central liaison office were governing Hong Kong today, we wouldn't have an extradition crisis because, I mean, come on, Hang, Hang Zheng is a smart guy. He's not going to say, hey, let's get rid of the legal firewall between Hong Kong law and Chinese law. Do you really think he's going to do that? But it is clear that they, they want a bigger say. They're just not very smart in how they get that bigger say. They're very good at saying, be Chinese, be this, be that. They're getting they're they're very bad at ingratiating themselves within society, and while and while the, the liaison office is very tactful and very polite, they can get on a lot of people's nerves. Not mine, of course. I mean, you know, to me, the liaison the liaison office is a fact of life. I mean, you, so I on my perspective, right? I I feel the 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 staking. Of of uh, the Chinese central government in Hong Kong is is very clear. Um, they want to assert the Chinese sovereignty, and they they so far I don't know how much they really want to you know get into the everyday governing of Hong Kong itself. But they want to make sure that you know whoever runs Hong Kong who or whoever governs Hong Kong doesn't turn Hong Kong into like a, like an empty PRC platform, right? I, I think that's the crux of the um, the issue about universal suffrage, the fight between, uh, you know, the, the, the central government and the demands of the pan-democrats in Hong Kong is that, you know, you remember a couple of years ago, there was a, that bill that they tried to get passed about the universal suffrage election of the, Hong Kong Central, um, the Hong Kong Chief Executive, uh, that that what China want is, um, okay, fine, have universal suffrage, have one man, one vote, but we want to have a vetting committee to make sure that whoever does get elected is, you know, like is is some some someone we find acceptable, right? Which which is totally not acceptable by by the pan Democrat camp in Hong Kong, but will, from Beijing perspective, it, it's fear about Hong Kong is that, you know, Hong Kongers is going to elect somebody who is anti-China, right? Let me, let me, let me, let me assuage your fears. The pan-Democrat caucus is weak, divided, and stupid. 
They've only been re-energized because of the protest movement. And and let's face it, they won't vote. Unless they do. I mean, I don't know anything about Hong Kong. China will have to take the risk of allowing the chief executive being an anti-Chinese goon. They will have to take the risk of things going wrong. Because if they do not allow universal suffrage as it is, they will continue to have an incontent city full of anguish and horror. If they want Hong Kong to be part of China, which many, which even most of the protesters accept, let's remember Hong Kong independence is a minority affair, including me. I was only mouthing off at that time. Hong Kong independence is a minority affair. If you want to defeat Hong Kong independence, you must defeat it at the ballot box. And remember how the Communist Party came to power. They came to power on the strength of their genius, of their wit, and of their competence. If they want to convince people that their sovereignty of Hong Kong is righteous, they will have to do the hard work of accepting the risk of somebody stupid being elected as chief executive. And I'll also remind you on this. I'll also put a little bit of practical practical politics on this. It's clear that the pan-democratic camp is dead. They've only been sustained so far because of young people. And young people don't vote. These people... We are eminently defeatable. You only need to come up with a couple good slogans and a little bit of this and a little bit of that before you can get the majority of LegCo seats. We're not a bunch of super victorious nationalists that will romp home every day. Remember, Hong Kong Island was super majority pan-democrat just 20 years ago, and now it's contestable. Electoral politics is ever-changing. Nobody ever has an eternal majority every single day. Look at Scotland. Look at North of England. Look at France. I mean, look at Paris. Paris used to be socialist utopia. Now it's being run by Anne Hidalgo. Now it's it's run by El Rem. Things change. Hong Kong will change. But if if the Chinese Communist Party is so insecure of its rule and is so paranoid about what is clearly just a bunch of people with sticks and hard hats, then how can we be so sure that they can govern China forever? If they can't control a city of people with sticks and hard hats and they can't beat them at the ballot box, which is super easy, I'm afraid. It's very easy. All you need to do is just say, Do you really want Hong Kong's government to be run by a bunch of people with sticks and hard hats? Is Ray Kwong going to be chief minister? Do you want Ray Kwong to be chief minister? I mean, come on. The slogans write themselves. I'm sorry about that. I mean, it's... it's, it's There is nothing to fear from universal suffrage. There's nothing to fear from... Ending corporate voting, there's nothing to fear from functional constituencies going the way of the dodo. Hong Kong people are pragmatic, and Hong Kong people want 
to express themselves. The only reason why the Democratic camp has such a, a lockdown, the only reason why Hong Kong people are so nationalistic is because they don't like they don't like being told what to believe and what to do. Remember this. I will say this to you people so that we can create a bit of peace between you and me. Chinese identity kept rising in Hong Kong from 97 to 2008, consistently for about 10 years, and then it hit a drop after the recession. Why? Because China, not only did China gave the impression that they were going to develop democratic systems, but they didn't really put a damn thing about forcing people to be Chinese. And then the Chinese-ness between Hong, sorry, and then the Chinese identity in Hong Kong began to grow. And then the pandems started to fail. Now, and the pandems have been failing. Listen, they're not going to win the next elections and nobody's going to vote for them. I wouldn't give it. I wouldn't vote for them. I will stand for them if they ask me to. Ha 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 ha. No, but but I want to reiterate this again as I am rambling. China has nothing to fear from universal suffrage. These people are eminently beatable at the ballot box because the slogans write themselves. Nobody is going to vote for Ray Kwong when they know that they can gain a majority. Our two cents on this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm actually not against universal suffrage in Hong Kong. Like even back in uh, before the handover, when the the debate started, um, I thought you know they started in '45. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the the you know the Hong Kong have every right to demand universal suffrage. Um, you know, I grew up in 1980s China. At the time, um, I don't know. I, I, I again, I, I left China for a while, so things might be different now. But in 1980s, how it was explained to us and how we understood it inside China is that you know the Communist Party is basically. Uh, Carrying out its uh, tutelage, uh, you know the, the same political tutelage system that uh, Doctor Sun Yat-sen has talked about, right? The, so the whole idea was okay. We, now the, the Chinese people as a whole is not at a point where they can handle a, a fully democratic system responsibly yet, because you know the, there's talking about suits, right? That's the quality of people. People people are not mature enough to handle democracy. So so the Communist Party, right, it's their, their responsibility to guide the society, there's a transformation to a point where finally democracy is possible, right? So, but, but that argument, um, even though I bought it back in 1980s, I felt did not apply to Hong Kong because, you know... I really, I really think, I really think, we, I really, I'm really tired of this, about this political tutelage thing. It's kind of like saying we don't get to eat bakute until we all learn how to eat enough yo tiao. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But let me let me finish my, my point. I'm, I'm, there's there's more I want to say is that like even though in 1980s you know I largely bought into this political tutelage argument for mainland China, but in 1990s uh, you know I felt the same cannot be said about Hong Kong because. You know, Hong Kong population is highly educated. Uh, they, they have long... Oh, don't be so sure of that. 
they have long, you know, they has higher standard of living. I mean, it has a large middle class, and I feel, uh, you know, Hong Kong people definitely uh, is at a point where they can handle the responsibility of a universal suffrage system. But when I talk about the sovereignty issue, right, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of the Chinese central government, right? And, 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 and neither of us <laughs> know what really Chinese central government is thinking, right? But what, what we can observe is through just their its actions from outside, like kind of kind of decode a black box, right? What, what the, from my observation, right, that the Chinese central government is obsessive about control. Right. I mean, in every aspect of the society and, you know, for Hong Kong, it's very vexing because Hong Kong is kind of outside the direct control of, you know, the, the central government. But the, the, what it, it, it does not understand, it fears. Right. And, and the, there's this the Hong Kong. Um, I mean, there's has always been like a nagging fear right on the side of the chinese central government that that you know hong kong can be turned into this um, staging ground right by 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 anti-china forces for uh, as, as a, a become an anti-china platform now granted you know hong kong was the was the front line of cold war so you know there were all kind of forces and and, and intelligence agencies I know, I know, I know. I know that the that the Chinese government worries about the territorial integrity of its own country, and there's more than a bit of reason to fear what Hong Kong can become if you give universal suffrage. But the point of universe, but I, the point of universal suffrage is not about. <laughs> Stop thinking about it in terms of foreign policy and international intrigue. Start thinking about it in terms of just plain decency. You start giving the pandems what they want today, and you can start battering us tomorrow. I guarantee you, you can win an election in five minutes. I promise you that. In fact, it's very easy to. But more than that, I'm really tired of talking about Hong Kong. It's kind of a touchy subject and it's really tiresome. And it's not even the best city in Asia. You know what I'm you know what? I just wanted to ask you a couple questions since you live in Bali. How the hell were you are you able to live in Bali? Isn't it very expensive there? No, it's Indonesia. It's, it's, this is Indonesia. It's not expensive. I mean, what? that's why But but but, but Bali but I'm sorry, but but all the Australians don't don't you have to deal with all those Australian tourists? You know, <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. I mean, if Bali pretty much getting take get take over. I, I or in my words, it's under full occupation during the huh. summer summertime. Um, and and I, I it was a little bit shocking when I first came to Bali. I, I stay at Changu. I got a homestay for a month, and. Um, and you know, just walking on the streets, I was like, "Oh my God!" It's like every all these like white people on scooters, <laughs> and just like like in every cafe, every place. I mean, the local only locals you see are the the people working in the service service industry. You know, as waiters and and operating restaurants and stuff like that. Um, 
but I was able to get away uh, from that a little bit. Now I live in a different part of Bali, uh, a Jim Brown, uh, Jim Brown, which is more local. And in fact, like it's very local. The only 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 foreigners I see uh, are these ones because I live close to the um, Indonesian immigration office in Jim Brown. So. Like only foreigners I see are those ones who come to the immigration office. <laughs> but but you know the the Bali itself it's it's very cheap. It's you know it is Indonesia. Um, I mean it's 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 more expensive than the rest of Indonesia because we do have this influx of um, Australians, uh, New Zealand, and and European tourists that that come here. Um, but overall, yeah. well, it's still. <laughs> Compared to American standard, man, this is super cheap. Like I, I rented um, a, a three bedroom house here. Uh, I leased it for a year. I mean, I, I paid thirty five hundred U.S. dollars for the whole year. I mean, that's like my rent in L.A. for two months. You know, so you know, if there was if there was anything I want to do, I just want to go back to Singapore and, and just loaf around in southeast Southeast Asia. Yeah, I, I, I feel unsupported by school, and I hate school. So if I if I could do anything, I just got this email back from a Singaporean university saying they won't take my credits. And I'm so fucking angry. You won't take my credits? Am I that retarded? Why the hell won't you take my credits? <laughs> and it's like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to move back to Singapore and fuck around. It's great. It's a great place to fuck around. But, you know, I this is my first time in Southeast Asia in like, uh, God, in like in like 17 years. And oh, my God, I love it. I mean, this is my first time in Indonesia, first time in Malaysia. I highly recommend. <laughs> I highly, highly recommend. Are you a nomad or you do move around a lot? Oh, I wasn't until I was here because I, you know, I had. I lived in LA since uh, God, since 2005. Uh, before that, I lived in Chicago, all over the place. But um, originally, I was just planning to take a few months to travel through Asia. I did two months in China. I came through Hong Kong on my way to Indonesia, and then now I'm in Bali. I don't want to move. <laughs> I want to stay. God. You know, it's like it, it really does suck. I mean, you know, politics is so goddamn heavy. You realize, you realize that, you know, it's so hard to live in a big country. And when you're a small country, you, you don't really, you don't really. It's it's even harder as you know everyone or you seem to know everyone. But if you move to if you move to a paradise, like a, like Hawaii, yeah, Hawaii is expensive. You know, you don't yeah. really, you, you don't really think you actually like doing shit. And I used to live when I when I lived in Singapore for a bit, you know, everything just worked, and and it is kind of like Hong Kong, but and yeah, never mind, no need. Well, thank you very much, and I I just want to talk to the audience for a bit because I know Hong Kong can be a very touchy subject. Sure. The first thing the first thing that I would recommend anybody from outside Hong Kong or even inside Hong Kong. Is that you should read any Hong Kong history book? You know, John, uh, a guy named Zhang wrote one. But uh, if you could, there are a lot of great English history books about Hong Kong. There's one by, uh, there's a concise history of Hong Kong. There's also one by a guy named Welsh called 
a history of Hong Kong. Um, just read any of them because, yeah, Frank Welsh. Any of the history books of Hong Kong are very good because they're, they provide a sense of they provide a sense of uh, education. Um, but other than that, because but other than that, because Hong Kong does not uh, does not get a lot of uh, publishing time. You know, there are other very good specific books you could buy. So there's one called Architect of Prosperity uh, about Cowperwaith, who created the Hong Kong economy in the post-war years. There's, uh, but my favorite book, uh, my favorite books are probably the ones called the Hong Kong series by Penguin Specials, and they're very small, they're very short, and the the one that's getting all the press right now, and the one that I absolutely also love is called City of Protest by Anthony Dapparan. And the the other one that's getting a lot of press by a guy that now lives in Sydney, but but used to work for the FT, uh, Ben Bland, is called Generation HK, uh, which is all about the Hong Kong people who were born in 1997. But the one I absolutely love and really explains everything. Uh, what what it, it it's simply it's simply just simple and easy to read is A System Apart by Simon Cartledge. After you read that, you'll know where to, you'll know, you'll know what, what you think is, is you, it's just such an essential book for everyone to read, whether you're pro-Chinese, sorry, whether you're pro-Beijing, pro-independence, whatever. It's, it tells the story of Hong Kong as it is since 1997. That's all I ask you to do. If you can come to Hong Kong, come to Hong Kong. If you can't, well, you can always go to other places. And uh, and uh, one more thing. Uh, remember to uh, pay off your credit card debt because that's the worst debt you can have. Goodbye, everyone. And fuck school! <laughs> that's very good advice. Thank you very much. Um, All right. And thank you for coming on to the show. We thank you. For thank you very much, Mr. Zha. Very frank uh, perspective. Um, and ev yeah. everyone else, uh, thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye bye. Thank you very much.